This episode of the Insurance Coffee House is sponsored by Insurance Search. Insurance Search provides executive recruitment services to insurance companies and brokers in the UK and across the United States. Visit insurance-search.co.uk for more details. The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Welcome to the Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get the chance to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders on the planet. On today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Adrian Sweeney, who is the Chief Underwriting Officer for RSA UK and International. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Nick. Good to be here. Thanks, Adrian. Really, really pleased to have you on the show today. Just to give the listeners a bit of background, Adrian has significant senior leadership experience in underwriting and pricing for commercial and personal lines, having spent the majority of his career working across Zurich's international business in senior underwriting and operations positions, including spending time in New York as the COO of their US corporate business and in Hong Kong as the regional CEO for Asia Pacific. Latterly, before joining RSA, he was the CEO for Zurich's commercial businesses globally. So Adrian, it'd be great if we could just get a bit of a background into your time at Zurich and also the role you now have at RSA and the work that you're doing there. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick. So 25 years at, at Zurich, last sort of couple of roles, probably the most important ones. So I left in 2017, as you said, I was the CEO for their commercial business globally, responsible for underwriting profitability for the commercial business. That's about, at the time, about $15 billion worth of business globally. Before that, I was based in Hong Kong, Asia Pacific CEO covering countries as diverse as Indonesia, Malaysia, China, and then down to Australia and New Zealand, quite a few points in between um, where you spend a lot of time on aeroplanes. That's the one thing I do know. And before that, I was in New York as, uh, as you say, COO for their corporate business in North America. Loved all those roles, North America particularly, because it was a very different business, very different operation and um, great. My first adventure overseas. So really enjoyed that one. Great, Adrian. And how did you find the comparison and the differences between the the markets you worked in during that time? Yeah, so um, the US is a hugely complex, very highly regulated uh, market. 50 states all legislate things in a different way. It's, it's a hugely complex environment. Your policy forms, when you issue them, the documents are 30, 40, 50, 60 pages long, taking into account all the various regulations. It is a massively complicated environment, a huge infrastructure that you have to make work just to issue a policy. Fascinating environment to be in, uh, but also highly innovative. You know, They do a lot of things that um, other markets only just begin to pick up. Asia, the good thing about Asia is you you talk about proof of concept there, and they they produced it by eleven o'clock in the morning rather than by three months' time. Um, and if you're not careful, by three o'clock in the afternoon, it's out in the market and they're selling it. You need to be, yeah. you know, the, the huge energy, uh, massively focused, but a very different market because a lot of people are only just beginning to buy their own first insurance products, and so there's a huge education piece, uh, but fascinating and, and a great region. Learns a huge amount about getting things done and trusting people to get things done, and actually keeping yourself out of the way sometimes as a leader. You know, the best thing you can do is give people a sense of direction and let them get on with it. And then at RSA back in the UK, very much a traditional UK insurer, uh, big in the UK and a few satellites around Europe and subject to a huge regulatory 
the challenges as all businesses are in the UK. The regulators, FCA, PRA, very significant input and a hugely competitive market, probably the most competitive in the world. So uh, in all of those, uh, you're trying to find a way to make, um, at least in Asia and here, an underwriting profit in the COO role. It's about managing the business as effectively as you can to squeeze as much efficiency and effectiveness out of a limited group of people. So lots, lots of things to learn. And during your time at RSA, I understand there's been quite a lot of change and you've implemented quite a, quite a big turnaround in things there. Perhaps you could just give the listeners a little bit more of an insight into that and how, how things are going there at RSA now. Yeah, so RSA had done a profits warning in 2017, 2018, did, did another one. Um, and I was brought in October 2018, basically with a, uh, the mandate was um, let's make an underwriting profit. And in 2019, we did. So big right. turnaround. Uh, we exited quite a few poor performing portfolios, uh, really tightened up what we were doing and how we were doing it. And second to that, launched an underwriting transformation program to really to digitize our underwriting capabilities new pricing capabilities and we're right in the middle of that program at the moment so beginning of 20 the the, the external announcements uh, were pretty good and I, and, I, and I think we had a good start obviously like everybody covid has now uh, intervened in that but you know pre-covid i think we were carrying on with the trajectory we'd set out in 19 so i think we've big turnaround big um, transformation quickly uh, which always gives you slight pauses has it embedded but i think we're going in the right direction Fantastic. We'll move on now to the main body of our interview today. Thank you for sharing your background. I think it's really important for our listeners to appreciate the background in which these questions do come from. So before I start there, as this is the insurance coffee house, what is your coffee of choice that you go to on a daily I'm, basis? I'm a, I'm a cappuccino man. And while I've been working at home, there's a, there's a coffee place in a little park quite close to where we are and it only reopened last week and i'm so happy fantastic cappuccino is the uh, sophisticated (laughs) shows a lot about you adrian well-traveled man just don't ask me to spell it (laughs) yeah great so adrian i mean we we know that a cappuccino is a good good start for the day for you usually but what what do you do on a on a daily basis that helps set you up for a successful day so I have a young family, um, so I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter and, and twins at one. So to be honest with you, starting the day in a fairly rigorous process is really important to get them up and fed and watered and, and moving on. And and I have a fairly standard start to the day with them. And then I just really treat at the moment every day like a normal day. So just do what you do, get dressed, keep reasonably smart. You know, I, I know many of my colleagues have, you know, have given up shaving. I've, I've, you know, I still shave. Still think that's important. Just to those standard processes. Then I spend a bit of time. I review the news. As a chief underwriting officer, you're always interested in what's going to hit you this week, next week, in three years' time. So I have a quick scan of the news, and then a little bit of reflection where the team are, what they're worrying about, what they need to be doing. And then, to be honest with you, five minutes of just looking at um, a blank screen, really, and just trying to, you know, get my head focused on what I need to get done that day and probably more importantly where do I have the gaps to deal with the no doubt things that get the curveballs that come down the lane every so often so that's that's my regular start to the day. Right and I think it's really interesting obviously as part of your role and your responsibility to know what's happening in the world and potentially how that might affect business what do you media do you go towards to to get your information for that because the UK media can be accused of being quite insular 
at yes. times. So, uh, yeah, how do you go about getting that information? For fear of being controversial, I'll say the US media is probably slightly more um, insular uh, in places. So I actually use a bit of technology that um, webs that scrapes um, news items from around the world from various different press services and various different insurance papers and networks and communications pulls all that together and i just have a flick at that every day and that does tend to give you a fairly broad view and of course having worked in the us and worked in asia you have a sort of group of people of, of connections and such like you talk to that keep feeding things in and so that that helps as well i think it's great actually and i, I think um, linkedin can be quite a powerful tool for that if you're Following certain news directories or even some insurance companies across the pond or or in Asia, you can they, they normally give a pretty good um, reflection on what what's going yeah. on over there at that particular time. And, and I think having been there, you can still and, and the further it gets away, the more difficult it is. But you can still put some context around some of the things you read because you understand a little bit about um, what actually is happening in the marketplace, yeah. and that can be very helpful. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Adrian, we understand that. In order to become a successful insurance business leader, there's often times of adversity that you have to overcome along the way. It's not always plain sailing. So as well as asking what, what's been your biggest achievement so far today in your career, what's also been the largest setback you've experienced and how did you go about overcoming that? So I think the largest setback was actually the, the Tianjin events as the chief underwriting officer for Asia Pacific. There's not a lot of fun being ahead of Zurich at that point in time and phoning the group up and saying, um, I think we're going to have a fairly substantial loss here. Like a lot of organizations, um, Asia was really over there somewhere. We didn't know a huge amount about it from the center. Um, and so all of a sudden the CEO pipes up and says, I think we're going to have a very big loss here because of this explosion. There's lots of, you know, don't worry about it. It's nothing to do with us. It's China. Because we were ahead, you could see the, begin to see the film and see the, see the cars on the deck. And, once the organisation recognises it, and we and Zurich at that point in time did pull out a net loss announcement to the market. Eventually, you know, people begin to question, you know, how on earth do we how on earth do we end up with a two hundred seventy five million dollar net loss? And you're the CEO in region, so you you have to just grab that issue and make sure that people understand what caused it, what the issue is, and what more importantly, what you're doing about sorting out the issue, and actually. A lot of the exposure was actually, you know, U.S. Oh, sorry, Western cars, European cars, sitting on a port in in China. So it was actually the, the European manufacturers that had been storing them there. So it wasn't really just Asia problem; it was more a European problem. And so once we began to understand that, the focus became less from what on earth did you do wrong in the region, more to, okay, how are you going to sort it out, and you know, what are we going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? And I think. You know, out of adversity, it's how you react to it that I think you know ultimately people recognise, and, and we put a lot of things in place, did a lot of things, changed some people, uh, and I think overall the group you know recognised, Zurich recognised that that was the right response, and that you know that didn't didn't stop my career despite there being a two seventy five million pound net on your two seventy five million dollar net on your on your resume. I don't I don't tend to advertise that one too much. No, it took control of the situation pretty pretty early, and would you say that yes. was the key thing? Yeah, you couldn't let it you couldn't let it fester because once people began to realise that this was going to be a big event, mm. then you've got to be all over it, and you've got to be taking the lead yeah. on 
uh, trying to explain to people this is what it is, this is why it's happened, and this is some of the challenges we perceive that are going to come from that. And actually, eventually, I think the, the net loss from Tianjin came down significantly in, from Zurich, but so the starting point was fairly substantial. Great. So, Adrian, we know that a lot of insurance professionals, if not all of them, tend to fall into the industry rather than waking up one morning deciding to be an underwriter. We understand that. And what I'd like to ask you is about how how you got into the industry and then when did you have that light bulb moment when you realised that you could be really successful in the insurance industry? I fell into the industry. I did A-levels from school. I was going to take a gap year. thought I would do some work in that gap year. I actually went to the job centre as it was at that point in time. Um, there was a job for Sun Alliance, as it then was, with their underwriting trainee program. No idea what that was, but it sounded interesting. And uh, there was also a job as a driver for the, a CEO of an oil company. Um, now, this is based in Croydon. Now, it's not known as the hotbed of oil companies, but anyway, it sounded interesting. So um, I applied for both, and Sun Alliance phoned up first and said, we, you know, would you like to join us? So, okay, then, yeah. And like a lot of people, I came in. They paid me money for a job that I thought I could do and was quite enjoying good group of people and I've been there ever since. In terms of when did I realise, I joined Zurich in 1992 and um, I joined a small team dealing with captives and alternative risk transfer um, at that point in time. And there was a business review with our group, uh, with our UK CEO to be done on about two weeks after I joined. And the CEO had a reputation, he was not particularly it wasn't didn't have a lot of emotional quality at this point in time. It was he was just shout and bang the table. And the morning of the business review, my boss stands up and says, "I'm just going out for half an hour, but I'll be back for the review." And then disappeared. And so I was asked to step in. You know, having been with the company for two weeks, no, having already heard the reputation, and just did the present. You know, did the presentation, gave my views and all the rest of it. Got very good feedback um, from him and and my immediate bo- uh, my. Um, CEO for the business area I was in and it just sort of felt actually maybe I've got something maybe there is something here that I can do uh, maybe I do understand this and um, you know maybe there's something I can I can do here and I think it was at that moment where I thought yeah let's give it a go. You thrown right into the deep end and it was think <laughs> or swim really. It was very much so yeah um, could have been a very short career at Zurich if I'd have, if I'd have loused that one up significantly. It's also really interesting to hear that you you started your career at Sun Alliance, and then 25, 30 years later, you're now back there as the uh, chief yep. underwriting officer. I left Sun Alliance after. Sorry, I left Sun Alliance after nine years, thinking if I didn't leave, then I'd be there forever. And then spent yeah. 25 years at Zurich, and, and I'm now back. So, yeah. and it's interesting the number of people that are still there that I still see there. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. <laughs> and in t- in terms of that, has has there been a mentor or a leader in your career who who you can identify as someone who has played an important part in your career and and given you a lot of advice over that time? There's been lots of them along the way, and and they're all a bit sort of um, time specific. So uh, rather than anybody that's accompanied me all the way through that I'd call out, but Stuart Spencer, I would name, currently the chief marketing officer of AIA, um, joined Zurich in Hong Kong about a year after I, I was there. Very driven, hugely dynamic. Didn't really know anything about general insurance, but was was trusting enough to let us do our job while giving us a very clear sense of direction of of how he wanted the job to be done. And you know, he wanted it to be done considerably quicker than anybody had ever done it before. But yeah, it really just 
he, he was constantly in your office asking you about what was going on, how you were doing things, and how could he help. Um, and he's, he was just very useful at grounding you in terms of, I know Asia, I've been here a long time, these are the things that will work, this won't work. You know, he was very helpful in giving you the um, some of his skills and experience with, mm. you know, with absolutely no, he had no hang up about that. He just wanted to share what worked and, and all of it. And it made a huge difference. Very positive. Sounds like a very interesting guy to work with. And actually, I think sometimes there's not a lot of that out there of how can I help? It's more what can yes. Yeah. And he was very much the opposite way around. It was very much, how can I help you get your job done? And he would, you know, he was driven and he would drive you very, very hard, but he would always come and say, what can I do to help? Who do I need to call? How can I make this happen? And and I think that's a really good lesson. And it's something that I try very hard to do. You can shout at people, but it doesn't actually get them to do it any better or any quicker. In fact, it just creates the wrong atmosphere most of the time. Mm. Helping people to do their job actually often ends up you achieve yours a lot better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Fully support that mantra. We've looked back now. If I can ask you to have a look into the future over the next three to five years, how do you see the insurance market developing and what do you think insurance business leaders should be doing to adapt so they can be successful in these times? So, I mean, if we don't get the hang of digitization now with COVID going on and the inability to do a lot of things face-to-face and in a very expensive, um, inefficient way, if we don't get the hang of that now as an industry, then somebody will genuinely come in and break the industry up. I think it's, it's just got to happen. So I think understanding of digital capabilities and, and what that means for, for people and a huge role to play in helping people shape their own careers around digitization because it, automation is coming. People are going to lose their jobs. They're going to change. They're going to have to change roles. I think we need to be helping those people through that change mm-hmm. uh, as much as driving the business. We've got to be help those people learn so that when they go into the jobs market, when the jobs aren't with us, they've got other roles and skills and such like. So I think we have a almost a societal role, I think, to help. And I think that's that will drive a lot of that. Um, I think innovation as well. Um, you know, we talk about the industry being um, you know, under under threat, under transformation, all the rest of it. It is. I mean, it, you know, our customers just will not continue to buy the same old product that in, as we're proving in COVID, is tough to understand what it does, mm. uh, and tough to understand who actually gets any real benefit from it. Um, that you know, that there's an industry ripe there for transformation, and so I think innovation is another one. And I think, you know, again, it comes back to people: the ability to find and, and and bring in, develop, and look after the best people in the market and the best people that aren't in the market but should be. That that's going to have to be. I think those three skills: digitization, innovation, and and the people piece are going to be the three that we're going to have to focus on so one aspect i take from that is enhancing people's skills and developing new skills and people who are already in the market yeah would you also counter bringing in people from outside of the sector from the from the tech sector to prove the way the business operates yeah i, th- I think we've got to I was to, I was on a conference earlier this week with some Google people that said, you know, we, we don't really want to come in and dominate your industry. What we want is for, to work better with you and, and work out how to make your industry better. I think that has to be a role for that. And I think we have to get external parties involved in the industry. The, the trouble is the industry is a bit checkered on that because some of those people come in, they form little groups and they become, you know, they sit in the corner and they do great things, but they're so very disconnected from the rest of the organization 
and, and you've seen that a little bit with some of the InsurTech work over the last few years, um, great work, but divorced from how the real companies are. Mm-hmm. You know, the industry has a huge problem in its basic back office functions, its policy admin systems, you know, and that's hard, heavy, grindy work. Mm-hmm. But somebody like Google or somebody like you know, that sort of engineering capability is probably an organization that could come in and help sort that bit out. I'm much more, I think the biggest opportunity for the industry is to bring people in and sort that out, not necessarily bring people in and, and develop very user friendly front ends and, and exciting whizzy new um, customer focused technology. But again, that's so it's hard engineering work that needs to be undone under the hood. And that's tough sometimes to get, you know, if you're, if you're an engineer capable of working at Google and we ask you to go and visit, a, you know, a, sit in a Lennox Wood center where our IT head off, you know, our IT um, data center is, you know, it's just doesn't quite have the same cachet. So um, I think that's a challenge for us. It's not quite as sexy as some of that front end shine. No, it isn't. That we see out there. Yeah, that's certainly uh, true. Adrian, I'd like to take you forward to the next round, which is the espresso round. Short, sharp, and straight to the point. So are you ready for the espresso round? I'm ready. Yep. Looking forward to this one. Great stuff. The espresso round. Well, Adrian, to kick off the espresso round, I'd like to ask you, what is your favorite success quote? It's a four-quarter game, which I picked up in North America. Um, it's amazing how the industry gets very upset if Q1 isn't doesn't work very well. But my American colleagues have always regarded it like an American football game. Um, you, until that last a second runs off the clock, you've still got an opportunity to win. And that's not a bad quote to have. That's a great quote. And I think it's far better than the English equivalent of a game of two halves. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> which you're not even allowed to go in and see nowadays. Oh. <laughs> no, exactly. Adrian, what is the number one thing you see holding back insurance professionals, particularly of, the writers, from being more successful? Lack of focus on the customer. Very simple. Um, we're a very insular, inward-looking um, industry. We have to get better at focusing customers. And you know, you, you look at the winners in, in most sectors. They understand what the customers want, how they want it, and they deliver to that. And we're way away from that yet. Do you think there's any progress that you're making at the moment in that regard, or is it a very, very slow process of, of, of turning the oil tanker around? I, I think it's the latter. I think we're turning the oil tanker around. We're putting in the but we're putting in the basic underpinnings, and we and within the organisation we are doing um, some bits and pieces in in that area and some good work in that area. But I think just as an ethos, we don't start with the customer and then work out how we how we build from there back in yeah. and we we sort of bolted on the top of something that we've already got and, that, and that's just it's never quite as good as 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 you you know you pick up your mobile phone it, it works you know we we work 90% of the time we're quite happy with that so it doesn't quite work if you pick up your phone and that only works 90% of the time so we've got more work to do on that mm. side definitely and, and how do you as a business at RSA drive forwards the standards of the insurance industry so we're a we, in fact, the underwriting function is a chartered capability as part of the yeah. CII. So we're very engaged with the CII, um, and you know we've always we've with a three hundred year history, um, we've we've trained and developed many of the people in the market even today, and I think we still um, have a little bit of a reputation for that. And um, I think it's good that people come and poach people from us. That that says that we're doing still quite a few of the right things, even if I'd like to keep a few of them for longer. So I think we do a lot. There, we have a lot of internal training development programs from an underwriter specific, but also leadership and management training programs, pretty good tiering as you go through the, the years. 
So I think we put a lot of time and energy into into training and developing uh, underwriters, but we could always do more. But I think we're in a pretty good place at this point in time. Yeah, I'd certainly agree and concur with that. That in our business, we we do see a lot of people with an underwriting background from RSA or Sun Alliance as it was then, and it's always a good sign of someone's pedigree. And I and I think that goes a long way in the industry. Yeah. I'd certainly concur on that. What does your what does RSA do to develop talent? maximize their chances of becoming successful insurance business leaders in their own right so we have a we have a regular every quarter we do a review of our talent lists in terms of those people that we've identified as as talent we have good succession planning processes and we balance those succession plan uh, pipelines with on a diversity basis as well so we try and make sure that it's equal uh, men and women and i think we've got more work to do is to extend that into ethnicity and all the rest of the, and those areas but we're doing a lot in that area we have we call it an accelerate program, which is for our next um, level of senior leaders that are coming through. We have a um, an underwriting connected leaders program for those people that are in leadership roles to to develop a an RSA way of being a leader, so that we're all aligned, talking the same sort of language. There's lots of good training and development, and even actually still quite a lot of just basic at the desk underwriter to underwriter training. We have a governance process where the basic first part of that is a, is very much a training and coaching um, program for our underwriters to get them to be better underwriters as you know day-by-day basis it sounds excellent it sounds like excellent opportunities if you're looking to move up the ranks into senior leadership positions just to finish off the espresso round if you woke up tomorrow morning with all of the knowledge and experience that you now have but your business wasn't there how would you go about starting again in your career and what steps would you take well i suppose it happens a little bit to me after 25 years with zurich i was on a, uh, a year's notice and they they put me in the garden for a year so i but i wasn't willing to sit there and twiddle my thumb so i decided to do some consulting work with some of the the insurtech companies again relatively small companies all needed some help approaching the market and understanding underwriting and a fascinating uh, group of, of organizations to work with because they think very differently they think at a pace that you know, we really don't understand in traditional insurance circles. So again, from my perspective, very great to get to know some of these people and see them grow over a period of time. So as well as you actually giving them consultancy, you're actually doing some personal development and learning yourself, which I imagine very much so comes in real handy, real handy now. Yeah, it's given me a little bit of extra knowledge about something else and I'm, I'm therefore feel like I know everything about it so I can comment on it when necessary. So yeah, it's very helpful. Great. Listen, Adrian, we, we've reached the end of our time together today. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you have one piece of closing advice for our listeners and how do they go about contacting you after the show? So I suppose one bit of advice. There are, um, I've always followed my career by interests in things I wanted to go and do. I wanted to learn. I haven't been, I haven't been focused on being the CEO of this at that particular point in time. I've just built up a bank of skills and that's meant in some cases I've need to go over there and do that. I've gone sideways, I've gone backwards. You know, I think some people like having a straight line up through the organization. I've been very much more about career by skills. I just keep both of those in mind, I think would be my advice. Don't get very focused on one particular job because often that job doesn't exist in five years' time. So I think it's about developing skills and capabilities, I think is how I would I would give I people think that's um, particularly pertinent in the market right now that's yeah absolutely and and you know learn yourself as you go and if you want to get hold of me um the email is probably the easiest and it's um adrian.sweeney at uk.rsa group 
www.thepodcastmarketingguru.com. Great. Thank you very much. And uh, to our listeners out there, we will be posting Adrian's email on the show notes so you can scroll down and, um, and find his email from there. Adrian, look, thank you so much for your time today. Your insights have been really, really interesting and invaluable. So thank you very much. No problem, Nick. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Good to hear. And uh, to all our listeners out there, whether you're based in the UK, US or across the world, Thank you for listening today and we've hoped you've gained some valuable learning and insights to take away with you. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast app and make sure that you download and subscribe so that you receive each of our episodes directly into your inbox each week. Till next time, I have been Nick Hoadley and this has been the Insurance Coffee House. Take care. You've been listening to the Insurance Coffee House with Nick Hoadley. Join us next time to hear more insights and inspiring success stories to help you become a better insurance business leader. Available to download or subscribe now.